You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Have your Bible tonight, please open to James chapter 2. I was reminded this week as I sat contemplating the delivering of this message, how futile the work here is apart from the truthfulness of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's absolutely true that any person getting up to deliver a message like this is going to speak every single word in vain if there is not absolute truth, if God hasn't spoken to us and given us His Word. And without the Holy Spirit applying these truths to our heart, we're, we're still wasting our time here tonight. And so the prayer is not that I'll have anything good to say, but that God's word will be clear and that he will speak to your hearts and your lives. In a moment, I will read some very old words originally written to people across the ocean in a different culture and in a different language. And yet the belief is that somehow these words are meant to change our lives today. What's amazing is we see them doing that. We see evidence in the lives of church members here. We see evidence, hopefully, in your own life that God's word is it's quick, it's alive, it's powerful, that it's able to break even the hardest heart, that it's able to change us in the image of Christ. I was talking to Andrew just before the service, and he mentioned that he was reading an article this week about hearing God speak to you. And there's a, there's a movement today, I'm sure you're aware of it, that there's a lot of people that have a desire to hear God speak to them. And so the author of this article was saying, well, if you want to hear God speak to you, then just read his word. And well, somebody might say, well, I want to hear God speak audibly. (laughs) And so the article goes on and says, then read it out loud. (laughs) That's good. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) Uh, The subject we'll be dealing with today is a heavy one. In some ways, it's a contested one. But the potential impact of the words here in James is staggering. The warning that is given is very serious. And if we get this text wrong, we are left with two options. Option A is that James does not belong in the Word of God. And option B is that salvation is a combination of both works and faith. So you see, it's important that we don't get the text wrong. When I was 16 years old, I was newly saved, and I was wrestling with this passage. And it is a, it's a difficult passage. The whole second half of James chapter 2 is difficult. And so I would ask my pastor, and I remember Pastor Wood explaining to me what the text meant and how I should understand it properly. And then I remember going away and that night opening my Bible to James chapter 2 and reading the words of James chapter 2 and being like, I know when he said it, it made sense to me, but I'm still stuck. Like, it still seems to conflict with my belief that salvation is by faith alone. And so how do I rightly understand James chapter 2? And so the goal tonight is to get this right. And I believe if we do get it right, it will reveal to us the genuineness of our own faith or the lack of genuine faith in our lives. I hope it will help us to see how real faith is to be practically worked out in our day-to-day lives. So before we jump into verse 14, I think it's worth repeating a few verses that James has already written that foreshadow the passage and the topic that he's about to cover. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he's already said this. He says, but, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving your own selves. So James begins and he says, you must be a doer of the word and not a hearer because if all you ever do is hear the word of God and all it ever does is enter into your mind and it's never changing anything about your life, that means you're self-deceived. You might think you got it, but there's proof that you don't. Then in James chapter 1, verse 26, he says, If any man among you seem to be religious, right? And, and the idea of seem, the inference is that they're not religious, that they don't have any real religion. So if you seem to be religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart, and your religion is vain. Again, self-deception. This, this idea of seeming to be religious, you, you put on this air of religion, but because you're not able to control your tongue, you, there, there's no desire to, there's no change in your life as far as how you speak. Your religion is vain, right? There's not, nothing true there. There's nothing alive there. There's nothing that's, that's making a difference. Then the verse preceding, James chapter 2, verse 13, says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. And so the good news here is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? Pastor mentioned that today. So it's great news that God's mercy can triumph over judgment. But the bad news is, if you show no mercy, then there will be no mercy for you. That's bad news. And so already, James is directing our thoughts toward this idea that there are people that have an air of religion and that claim to be something, that claim to be a Christian, that might even or probably are in their churches, attending their services weekly. Right? There are people among them claiming to be them that are not them. They're not truly born-again believers. Right? They don't have real, authentic, genuine faith. And this is a problem. Right? This is something that should be addressed. I'm telling you, this is not something that is, it's, it's not the funnest thing to talk about. It's not like, yes, I get to go speak and I get to tell a bunch of Christians that maybe they're not Christians. I mean, that's not the goal, obviously. The goal is, though, to have us all examine ourselves. Right? And we need to do that. It is a very legitimate concern. If you find yourselves in a church or listening on the radio to a preacher that is never concerned about false professions of faith, that preacher is either severely ignorant to what the Word of God says or chooses to say only what makes his listeners happy. Probably the second one. The Bible is very clear about this. It talks about it a lot. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will heap to themselves teachers after their own lusts. And there are so many people out there that when they go to church, they want someone to tickle their ears. And you know what? I'm all for a good ear tickling, right? Not from the pulpit. Not in church. It's weird here. It's not right here. Here we need truth. And what I'm talking about, I mean, never mind. We'll let that go. Literally is what I'm, you know, it's, it's literally a nice thing. But no, like we need truth, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> let's, let's, let's just go to the text. James chapter 2, <laughs> verse 14. James 2, 14. What does it profit my brothers, though a man say he has faith, and has not works. Can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister be naked naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. James begins a rather lengthy discussion on the need for genuine faith, and we're going to cover this part of the discussion this evening. He begins in verse 14 asking a a simple question. What's the profit, brothers brothers in Christ? So he's addressing people who obviously believe themselves to be Christians, at least. He says, what is the benefit if a man says he has faith? And the idea of saying he has faith, he's he's not saying that this man has faith. So he's not saying, what is the benefit of faith? He's saying, what is the benefit of a claim to faith if you don't have works? Can faith save him? And when it says, can faith save him? It's not asking the question, can faith save him? It's asking the question, can a claim to have faith save him? Okay? So it's not, it's, th- it's that kind of faith that he's talking about. It's the kind of faith that makes a claim without any evidence, without any works that go along with the faith. Okay? So we need to get this point very clear, because if you miss this spot, if you miss this point, then everything that happens after this point is muddled. And I think when I was a teenager, this is the part I, I really got stuck on. Because the question, can faith save him? And the answer is going to be, well, well no. That kind of faith can't save him. But if you don't get that the kind of faith that he's referring to is the faith that is a claim to faith without any works at all, without any evidence of the claim to be true. That's the kind of faith that doesn't save him. So we're going we're gonna to get into that tonight. You can see why it might be a, a controversial topic. But we must understand what kind of faith he's describing. And so what he does in verse 15 is he pre- presents a scenario to us to help us understand what's going on here. He says, if a brother or sister is naked, they're destitute of daily food, have nothing to eat, And one of you says unto him, go in peace, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you don't give them those things that are needful for the body. What is the profit there? How is that good? Now, now this is where you got to imagine, imagine the scenario taking place, right? Imagine there's another person in this church and they show up at your door and they're naked. Don't imagine that part. But they show up at the church at your door, right? They're knocking on your door, and you can tell, man, it's cold outside. They don't have proper clothing. Their, their shoes have holes in them. Um, they're dirty, and they're ragged, and they're, they're completely worn out. And they obviously just don't have clothes, new clothes, nice clothes, anything to put on their back. They don't have a coat, and it's winter. Like, I mean, imagine this scenario, right? Imagine that they knock on your door, and it's clear just from the way they look. They haven't eaten in days. These people are starving. Right? I think what James is trying to do is he's trying to give us an extreme example. So when you picture this in your mind, take the most extreme example possible. Somebody shows up at your door, they've got nothing, they haven't eaten. It's just clear from their appearance alone that they're in a horrible state. And he says, your response to that person knocking at the door, as you go sit down at your turkey dinner, is to say, oh, it's good to see you, brother. Be warmed and filled. See you later. I got to get back because I got food ready for me, right? I've got a comfy chair I want to sit in later. And I just don't want you to, to wreck my night at all. If that's your response, what's the profit? Now, the words that were used, the words that were said, 
Are they good or bad words? Be warmed and filled. They're good. I mean, if, if that's really how he feels, then that's a great thing, right? We, we want the person to be warmed and filled. That's the goal. That's what they need right now. But if you're the kind of person who your response to somebody in that state is to say be warmed and filled, the question could be asked, if that's your response in this situation, do you actually want that person to be warmed and filled, or are you just saying it? I think it's pretty obvious. You don't care. You, you, you don't have the love that you're expressing with your words. right? Your words say be warmed and filled, but your actions prove you don't want them to be warmed and filled. Because if you did, you'd say, I've got a place at my dinner for you. If you did actually care, you wouldn't just say, be warmed and filled, depart in peace. You would say, come on in and be warmed and filled. I've got everything that you need here. Okay? That proves that you actually do love and care. But just saying the words don't prove anything. Now, I want you to think with me. I want you to go back 10 minutes before the knock on the door. Okay? If, you were, if you're picturing this same household 10 minutes before the person knocked on the door and they were having a discussion about poor people in their community. And and a few of them said, you know what, it's really important that the church steps up. We should really be helping the poor in our community. We should really be caring about people, especially those that are part of our church. You know, it's really important that we love each other. And this man who owns the house steps up and says, you know, I agree with everything you're saying. I think it's important to love those people. I think we should feed them. I think we should give them clothing. Okay? At that point that this man makes that statement, is there any way for the people in the room to know whether they're genuine or not? There's not, right? So at that point, I mean, take, sure, take his word for it or, or whatever. Just like, there's no proof, but there's no proof to the contrary either. It's not until the person knocks on the door and they're given their opportunity to exercise that love that they just expressed that it's proved they actually have no love at all. That, that was just a farce. That, that this whole thing is, is a fake. That what they said is not what they really believe or how they really feel. So, the scenario demonstrates that if we're comparing that kind of love to this kind of faith, then what, what James is saying is, if you have a faith that's like that love, the kind of love that actually never does anything and doesn't really love at all, that, that's just pretending to love. If your faith is the faith that, that speaks the right thing, be warmed and filled, but there's no evidence, there's, there's nothing that changed in your life, there's no helping others, there's, there's no love for Christ, there's no, I mean, there's nothing to demonstrate that love, that faith. It's a claim. It's nothing more. It's a false claim. It's not true faith we got to get this very clear to understand what James is trying to get at here. And so he concludes in verse 17, Even so faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead because it's alone. Okay? Or faith by itself, without works, without, without the demonstration of that faith, is dead. And dead does not mean it exists, but at the moment it just can't answer. Dead does not mean at the moment it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, but someday hopefully it will, and someday maybe when you die and you go to heaven, all of a sudden that dead faith will will be brought to life. The the, the idea of dead faith here is that it's useless, it's meaningless, it's vain, it's empty. It is not faith. It doesn't save. That's not the real thing. 
And so a claim to faith without accompanying works is not a saving faith. A claim to faith without accompanying works is a false claim. The distinction is necessary. James is not saying that faith and works mixed together in the right proportions will save you. We must be clear about this as well. He's not saying have a little faith, add a little works, and then you'll be saved. But what he is saying is have real faith, And there will be works. Necessarily. Real faith must must be accompanied by works. So there are two things that I want us to look at tonight. Two points of application. The one is the need for certainty of faith. I know that struggling with whether or not we're believers, especially early on in our Christian lives, is something that happens to a lot of people. I bet if we were to survey the audience tonight and say, how many people have ever wondered about their salvation since they've been saved. Most people would probably put their hand up. You know, I've walked a lot of people that I believe are are wonderful Christians through this same struggle. And so I know what exists. And I don't think God wants us to live our Christian lives wondering whether or not we're really saved. I think that's something we're supposed to know, that he wants us to know. And I, I really believe that you'll be a more effective evangelist and you'll be a more effective believer if you are sure that you are a believer. Kind of makes sense. So I think that God wants us to be certain. And I I know that these verses can prompt us to ask these questions. And sometimes they might even, the the question asked to a real believer might make them go, well, when you say it that way, I don't know. I mean, is there really the evidence? I thought I was, but I'm not sure. And I know, so I know that there's a danger in this, but I don't, I, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to ask yourself the question and get through that time so that you can be sure. And I think even more, it's worth it to ask the question because there's a chance that somebody here tonight's not. There's a chance that when you ask that question, the, the revelation is, ah, I, I prayed this prayer a long time ago and never really changed my life, never really meant it. There's nothing, there nothing different. I, I, I said words and maybe I made some intellectual beliefs, or there was something in my head that said, okay, yeah, sure, Jesus, but I never trusted. I never fell on Christ fully and, and, and longed for that salvation, right? That never happened. There was never true repentance. There was never true faith. And so if, if, there's, if there's a chance that somebody here tonight might be in that situation, we need to talk about it. I grew up in Lambeth, it's just outside of London. It's part of London now. But when I grew up, it was outside of London. And I went to a church that was about 10 minutes out into the country. But there was another Baptist church in Lambeth that, you know, by most standards, was a, was a pretty good church. They believed the Bible. They taught the Bible. They believed the gospel. Um, they were a little bit different than us, but they, they were a pretty good church. And I remember hearing about a week-long revival service that took place at this church. And it was like during that week-long revival, church, revival service, Everybody at the church got saved. And, and I don't know what your response to that is. There's, I think there's two responses. One is, oh, that's, that's incredible. That's amazing. Praise the Lord that everybody in the church got saved. The second response is like, how did they have a church? <laughs> everybody just got saved. And what I would assume is that not everybody at the church just got saved. Right? I think that it could be that, that maybe some great speaker played on the emotions of well-meaning Christians, and had them get saved. Um, and maybe it stroked his ego a little bit. But I don't know if that was the real thing. And so 
What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say that James's goal is not to make every believer doubt their salvation so that they're going to reconfess and re-get saved and all those things. He wants those that are saved to know they're saved, and he wants those that aren't saved and think they might be saved or are claiming to be saved to be clear that they're actually not saved. That's, that's where we're going. So let's make sure we're clear about what James is encouraging these people to do. He wants us to examine our lives Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He said, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Prove your own selves. In uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 16, there was people who were professing to know God. But in their works, they denied them. So these people certainly exist. And the question we must ask ourselves is, do we have saving faith? Not the acceptance of intellectual propositions about Jesus. It's not, do you believe that Jesus existed? Your answer should be yes. That's not enough. It's not, did Jesus die and rise again? That's a good step, right? And it's pretty amazing that somebody did that. But saying yes to that question, it's not enough to save you. It's not just knowing some truths about who Jesus was and what he did and knowing truths about the Bible and even being willing to admit that, yeah, I think Jesus did die for sin. That's not enough. Saving faith is recognizing our sinful state. Right? There's no salvation without repentance. And there's no repentance until we recognize the state we're in. We must see that we're sinners. We must see that we've fallen short of God's law. We must see that there's no way for us to stand before a perfect and holy God who is a just judge and have him say, yeah, sure, don't worry about all your sin. I'm just going to let you in anyway. We must see that we've fallen short of his standard. And so we must recognize our sinful state. We must, number two, realize that there is nowhere else to turn. You don't, you don't get to pick your way of salvation. It's not like, well, you know what? I'm, I might not be good enough in myself, but I've got this little statue, and he's going to help me in. There's no, there's no choosing your own way. God is God. He has revealed truth. He has provided a way. If you go his way, there's hope. If you go your way, there's no hope. You don't get to pick your way. What he's calling you to do is recognize your sin, repent of your sin, and then put your faith Fully, wholeheartedly, all eggs in this basket. Wholly on Jesus Christ. On his finished work on the cross. You recognize that when Jesus died, he died for your sin. When he was was in heaven, sorry, in heaven. When he was on the cross, the wrath of God that you deserved was being poured out on his head. That he died in your place. And when you repent of your sin and ask him to save you, realizing that he's your only hope and he's the only way and you're putting everything, all of your trust on him to save you, that's saving faith. Right? And it's not saving faith when you're just saying, sure, I believe he existed. we got to know the difference. Because a lot of people in church, sure, Jesus existed. They've never done that. And so do you have saving faith? Not have you prayed a prayer? But have you forsaken your own way and every other way to put your trust in him alone? Second question is, is there evidence of that saving faith? 
If that really happened to you, there will be evidence of it. The question is not, do you ever fail? Because you will fail. All believers fail. Um, The question is not, do you wish you could do better? I hope you do wish you could do better. I think we all struggle with that at times. We we wonder, man, why am I not further along at this point? I feel like I should be better. Why do I disappoint myself? And why do I disappoint the Lord so often? But that happens to all of us, all those who are in Christ. We feel that way sometimes. Um, The question is not, do you fall into the same sin trap over and over? Because there are believers that battle with, with sin, and sometimes a certain sin for a long time. The point is they're battling. Right? They're still fighting. The question is, since your conversion, have you seen gradual growth in your life as a believer? You might not be where you want to be, but is there some kind of sign of growth? Is there an increased desire for Christian fellowship? Is there an increased desire for the Word of God? Kind of a a weird love for the Word of God. An increased awareness of your own sin. Do you find that, I mean, sometimes I think this is the thing that, that pulls believers down a little bit is that we start to look at our lives and honestly assess our lives, and we go, yeah, I fall short in this area, and this area, and this area, and I never saw that before. That's not evidence that you're not saved. That's evidence that you are saved. That's the Holy Spirit helping you to see in your life areas that you before didn't care about. They didn't mean anything to you. And all of a sudden, you see them as a sin against a holy God. And so there is increased awareness of your own sin, increased conviction of the Holy Spirit, Uh, An inability to participate in previous sins without suffering consequences. I think one of the things that is unique and is interesting about the way that that when when somebody who's a Christian and they go fully into sin, you're going to find that, I mean, they never find satisfaction there. They never find true joy there. Even though when you watch the world do it, sometimes they, they seem to be able to do it for a while and like there's not really any consequences. But when believers do it, it's like they just head first. I mean, they're, they're gone. They're done. It's, it's not, there's nothing there for them. It's a sign that you're really in Christ. Do you have an increased awareness, or sorry, an increased willingness to sacrifice of yourself and to give of those in need? Do you have an increased desire to control your tongue? See, these are all things that the Bible tells us to look to that are they're called fruit. If you're a believer in Christ, then these fruits should be beginning to be evident in your life. Right? We have the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 6, do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Galatians 5. Um, I used this verse uh, this morning in Sunday school class, and I love that it fits really well here. And so I, I like that I get to use the same verse in Sunday school as I am here. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Here's a, a description of a group of people who are not saved. He says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, their lips do honor me, but they've removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. This was the state of of Israel at this time. This is the, the direction they were going. And what they had done is they were singing the right songs. They were saying the right things. On their lips was God's praises. In other words, they were showing up in church still. right? They were still professing to believe all of the same things. But this is what you saw in their lives. You saw that their hearts were removed far from God. 
There was no love for him. There was no love for believers. There was no love for the scriptures. There was, no, there was nothing going on inside of them. And that they, um, their fear toward God was taught by the precept of men, meaning that the way that they acted toward God and toward people was completely a set of rules that they formed for themselves, right? They had the list, and they kept the list. They had the precepts of men, and that was, for them, that was the fear of God. Brothers and sisters, that's not the fear of God. The fear of God is not a, a, a set of rules that you just keep, and all of a sudden, automatically, you fear God. Okay? All of this is supposed to begin inside of us. Right? This is faith and the Holy Spirit working in us to change us into who God wants us to be. This is not us stapling fruit onto our lives. It doesn't work. So have you been changed by your faith? Are you being changed by your faith? Billy Sunday once said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. A.W. Tozer said, we cannot pray in love and live in hate and say we are worshiping God. We've got to recognize that the things that we say must match our life, right? And nobody's perfect, and we're not saying it's going to be perfect, but there should be some evidence. The second thing we see here is an example of the evidence of faith, right? Not only do these verses demand us to examine the legitimacy of our faith, right? they do that, but they also provide an excellent example of what faith should look like in action. And the example here is in keeping with James' theme so far. If you read the book of James, you realize that he's often dealing with our relationship with the poor. He's very concerned about the poor in his area. And I think that's a wonderful thing because it, it, I don't get the feeling that James is a really poor guy. At right? this time, he was one of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. He was an important guy. People looked to him for leadership and help and guidance. It doesn't seem like he was saying all these things about the poor just because he wanted more you know, help for himself. It seemed like he was truly concerned about the poor. And I think he's a great example for us. Um, In verse 27, he said, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So you want to know what pure religion looks like. Part of it is caring for people who have nothing to offer you. Loving those who are most desperate in this world. He goes on on in James chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respective persons. So again, he's concerned that we're not taking the poor and putting them down or taking one race that we don't like and, and treating them differently than everyone else. He, he wants to make sure that we recognize that, that under God, we are the same. We all hold the image of God. And so we ought to be treated well. There should be unity. So there should be this evidence of faith. Here in our text, it is a calling for us to care for the naked and the destitute of daily food, those who are suffering and hurting. I know the example that's given is given there primarily to show us what what real faith should look like, Um, but I think it stands by itself as an example of, okay, well, how do you actually live out your faith? Well, there's a need, right? The need knocked on your door. When a need knocks on your door, how do you respond? The question is not, and sometimes what we do is we Read a verse like this and be like, okay, the church should be caring for the naked and destitute of daily food all the time. That's our job. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying that somebody knocked on your door. And when somebody knocks on your door, how do you respond to them? When there's a need presented to you, whatever that need is, how do you respond to that need? That is part of the evidence of your faith. It is caring for those 
who God puts before you. It's loving those who can't offer you anything. And so we ought to, as believers who have faith in Christ, in the Christ who came for the sick and the poor and the lowly and the the humble, we ought to be loving those people and we ought to be looking for opportunities. We ought to be willing to help as needs are presented. Uh, And you know what? One of the things that I need to do the most, I think that's helped me, is I need to actually just look. I just need to open my eyes more and see the needs. I think we're very, sometimes good at saying, yes, we definitely should meet needs when they are presented to us. And we expect that somebody's just going to walk up and say, this is exactly what I need, this is why, and this is, you know, like that's not how this how it usually works. Usually you have to look. You're, you see a need because you're invested in people, you care about them, and all of a sudden you see what you could do. And so we should do that. If I'm honest, and I think if a lot of us were honest, this doesn't come natural for us. Right? Something we have to work at. Self-sacrifice is unnatural for many people. But here's what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. And if you think of your flesh as, as the stream, right? what is the natural way that you want to go? What is your natural propensity based on your personality and your makeup and all those things? If all you ever do is live in your natural stream, there's no evidence of life. But when we start going upstream, when we start swimming the other way, when we start saying, God, I want to add, I want to do these things you've called me to do, by your power, through your grace, I want to be the person that you're calling me to be, that's swimming upstream, and that's evidence of life. So that should be present in our lives. I'm not sure what part of the message you need to hear tonight. Uh, maybe it's a call to examine your faith, simply because it's to strengthen the fact that you are a believer. right? And so you should be living like it. Maybe the call to examine your faith will reveal that maybe you don't have the genuine article, that you must repent, that you must fall fully on his grace. I've heard testimonies of pastors who were in ministry for 15 or 20 years before they really got saved. The scary thought. There are people preaching up here, speaking God's word, not really saved. Got to be people in the congregation. So maybe that's what it's going to do. I've heard of missionaries. I mean, the Wesleys, right? Missionaries. Don't get saved until they'll trip back. Maybe the message tonight is just a reminder that your faith is meant to be seen and heard. There's meant to be evidence. It is an inward reality that transforms everything about who we are, everything about our outward behavior, everything about our speaking. I saw a meme this week, and it said, I'm so glad you told me what a good Christian you are. Judging by your actions, I would have never known. That should not be true of us, right? We should not look at our lives and think, there's no evidence. They should be able to see there's something different, something going on. Not perfection, but something happening. And so let us love those who need love. Let us look for needs as we have opportunity. Let us show the world around us how our faith in Christ has transformed our lives.